Okay, whoa, universe. Have I ever got the stitched up Frankenstein episode of all time for you? And normally I would just... I would normally tape this together, put it up, and not think twice about it. But recently, a landmark triple-digit subscriber uh, platform uh, realization has been crossed. And frankly, that is spooky. Uh, so I speak to now anybody who has been <clears throat> eavesdropping on my conversations with myself and say, I'm sorry for the four days this one took to get ready, but between Nuggets games and yard work and some other stuff I was getting done and really being productive, sometimes I just don't have time to come in here and coherently get thoughts down in a way that I think, uh, is a value. And uh, this was one of those four-day stretches when I did have valuable moments and times, and I didn't even get to talk about some of the open mics this week. And I've done a lot of um, internal reflection about comedy. So I've got a whole lot to say on that that I didn't say yet, and I'll say it next. But for this one, this little preamble is to tell you, this is a goofy four-day set, because the Nuggets won both those games on the road. Oh my God, are you kidding me? The Nuggets are a goddamn NBA juggernaut? And, well, I got trapped in some family time that was valuable, and some other things crossed my threshold that mattered. And, frankly, I had to spend a lot of time with my dog. She's not got much time left, and she gets all my attention right now. So, as much as I love you guys, and you know I love all of you, uh, this Stitch Together episode is maybe worth your time. At least I think the last part's probably the best. But that still doesn't mean you should be listening, right? I mean, there is so much to do in this brave world out there. If you just go out there and let it happen, it's amazing what kind of life you can lead. So, with that in mind, I'm going to go lead some life while you listen. Well, hello, universe. Oh... I'm a little sore from, I think, too much exercise, which doesn't bode well for the bike trip I have to take downtown in about an hour. And the ride home's even worse, because that's the uphill part. But when you're 53, almost 54, if you're not riding a bike or doing something to offset the lack of youthful, invigorating metabolism, well, then you'll get to be like most Americans. Overweight. And no, I'm not calling America fat. I'm calling it overweight. So, yeah, uh, I weighed myself today. I weigh 162. I'm 5 foot 9 and 7 eighths. And, uh, well, I'm a cancer. And um, I do like walks on the beach, but not as much as you'd think. Mostly because I'm from Colorado. And I think in a past life I must have drowned because I have a definite fear of the water. So, um, with those glorious nuggets of information, hmm, I wonder if the Nuggets will win their basketball game tonight. If I had to say, then I would say yes. But then they will lose the next one so that it will be tied 2-2 going into game 5. No matter how it shakes out, that's how it's going to come back. With that in mind, I don't want to talk about the Nuggets. I'm not a sportsman anymore. What I want to talk about are open mic nights. And the one that I went to last night 
Actually, I went to two, but I was too late to get to the second one. Um, and yet, I, um, I learned a lot again. Last night, there were funnier people, for, for one, for no doubt. Although, a couple of the same not-as-funny people were there. And um, doing the same stuff. So, that was definitely a little bit surprising. That you would have um, a failure night, and then you would just go to another place and try the same stuff, hoping it would hit. I don't know. I mean, if you really believe in something, maybe, but if your joke's about tonguing your dad, or I don't even know what it was. But My point is, I was... So I learned that there's a circuit of mediocrity that is chasing its own tail from open mic night event to open mic night event across town. Um, as expected, I suppose. I have so little experience even supporting open mics, which is terrible to say, um, that I don't know what the routine of a traditional open mic looks like. Um, so I'm learning a lot in every capacity there is to learn. Um, I learned last night that you have many, um, uh, disoriented, uh, themed, uh, comics who are either displaced geographically. I'm from Indiana. I'm from Alabama. I'm from Great Britain with no accent whatsoever. Um, there are entire acts built on being a short woman or a woman who wears glasses or uh, a man who likes spaghetti or um, how reductive you can get the categorization of trees if you really go after it. There's, there's no shortage of tapping the mundane to try to pierce the funny, but it's hard. And there were some legitimately funny people in action last night, but even they would have been at best, and, and I'm, I don't qualify even as good as this, trust me, but they would have been at best warm up in a comedy night for another person who was going to then have the headliner come on. It's, it's the very minor league level of um, execution, but you can see some raw uh, skill and certainly some insightful and, uh, and witty uh, attempts to uh, win the crowd. So I was um, encouraged that there were funnier people attending this open mic than the first one. And that the jokes were, well, still 85% sex, but there were some interesting not-sex joke tracks that were taken in this exhibition much different from anything that was done in the first one. So having two under my belt, I'm now a pro. Um, I can tell you anything you want to know about Denver Open Mic Nights. Um, I've learned everything. Uh, at least I've learned everything about what it's like to do your first one and then do your second one. Um, and that's kind of the tactic I was trying to take last night.
because I knew most of the people in the room had at some point sat down for the second time reflecting, okay, now can I do better? And so I was saying that I didn't even, and when I got up to the microphone, I took it and then sat down because I said, it, it's, <laughs> it's a certain level of hubris or, um, uh, or self-importance to think that you're worthy of a stand-up comedy microphone. What you're saying is, I'm so clever, funny, and uh, good with the word that I can get you, whatever mood you're in right now, to like me enough and start laughing with me that you won't mind that I just basically took over the room. If you're good, well, yeah, that's what you do. Um, if you're not, well, then you do a variety of other things that don't quite qualify with win the room or seize the moment or however else you want to carpe diem it. And I'm certainly uh, every mistake possible that can be made will be made by me. I haven't made them all yet because I've only done it twice, but the mistakes that I see other people make are also helpful to rehearse my uh, stage presence enough that I don't fall into the traps of basically nervous, um, rushing and choppy, uh, uh, conversation tone, making it hard to follow what they're saying. In other words, in other words, how many other words do you want? Well, you're going to get a few. The, the relaxed, confident delivery is the winning delivery, no matter what, unless you're in character. And any story you're telling, even if it's one where you are the unbelievable recipient of uh, diarrhea squirts gone wild, whatever is going to end up being the turn of event, well, bring it in with the knowledge that the story is hilarious or lose track of yourself and watch your stories mean nothing. And I watched it over and over again with especially newer comics because nobody that's been up there five times has structured jokes ready to go. And so there's a lot of storytelling that wanders into what am I even talking about? Wait, what question did you ask me? Did somebody ask me a question? Somebody ask me a question. Please, somebody ask me a question. Um, and then with that level of disorientation, trying to find something relevant in their, uh, delivery of material has vanished, if not entirely turned against them. So you can't begrudge people's efforts though, because how else do you get better at being on stage than going and being on stage? You have to do it. And if you're not willing to put in the cluckety-cluck and the complete misfires that are your own cause so you can learn from them, well, you're going to just delay the process of anything valuable because going through this is certainly, well, one of the biggest reasons people don't want to do it. People don't want 
the idea of bombing on stage to have to be something they'll endure and learn from. They want that to never be in their repertoire of memory whatsoever. And I think what you come to see if you're committed enough to this is you can't help but have misfires if you're doing anything within the genre that's of value. You can't push comedy forward, even in your own bubble of how you do it, without taking some risks with the audience that don't work. And that's good. The audience is actually understanding of those moments because they're aware that good comedy requires comedians to push the envelope enough that once in a while the audience has to say, mm, lose that one. And even the comedian has to recognize those moments where they've taken something that they had envisioned blossoming in a way that the audience takes a different direction and runs with, and that's just the way it goes. Rework the delivery or scrap the joke. And as I see these second round open micers, well, they get me interested in their whole process because I study people generally, but to have something of actual interest to study on them, and it's all about presentation and the subjective read of the room. Oh, oh man, man, do I love this. This is my territory. And I can't express enough how much being in a room full of comedians feels like the place I'm supposed to be. And not that I'm funny, not that they're funny, not that the world even right now can laugh at anything, but there's a, there's a shared darkness that understands that's just the reaction. The darkness isn't you. It's how you have to react to a world filled with unsettled, unrealistic, unbelievable situations. And if those would go away, well, your darkness would lift immediately. But since they are persistent, since they are growing, since they are intensifying, the ludicrous culture that we were in 20 years ago is now off the rails. So if you can't defend yourself through some level of straight-on do-good-against-evil-in-this-world kind of way, well then, yeah, you help people deal with the pain by laughing them through it. And if, if the one gift the world could ever get from me is the idea that we don't need to take it all so seriously and that fixing it is a matter of deciding that we want to, well, where else are you going to get that message except from a stand-up comedian in this world? We are... We are shut down in almost every communication method that is available online because it's all being censored and, and watched and, and shadow boxed. So if you're going to try to change the world, well, you're going to do it face to face. You're going to do it in rooms full of people who are attentively involved in changing their outlook through conversation and intelligent inquiry 
That's what comedy is. So, could I feel like I'm more on a mission from God? Well, yeah. I'd be like one of the Blues Brothers, and there'd be a nun who was all freaky, and I'd be floating down the hallway, and all of a sudden, Princess Leia would be shooting me with a bazooka. But, since it's just as good to be on a mission from within yourself that feels purposeful and toward destiny, well, call it God, call it self-realization, call it a life finally lived in a place that comes correct and doesn't require anything other than my bursts of creativity and humble approach to life whenever I think I've got something figured out, I probably don't. But, um, I don't know, I'm wandering a lot today. This isn't even really interesting, so I'm glad you're not listening. Ha, how funny was that? Hold on, I'm going to do some stuff and maybe get more interesting, or maybe not. Be back in a minute. Okay, well, <clears throat> one thing led to another, and now I've showered and have to get ready to go to my, uh, what is this, to uh, stand-up joke crafting workshop. Anyway, um, I was speaking about how there's a community here, and I can sense... Um, the camaraderie among the people enduring this, uh, this rather, uh, thankless endeavor, um, are doing it for reasons that matter to them, that are of value to them. And then there are some who are doing it because they need to hear something from others, um, to help fill the void. But most people are there complete and trying to deliver something to the universe. And that crew, I can definitely hook my wagon to. So I'm going to go uh, see how this one goes and then report back when I get home. And then I'm going to get some sleep because I really do need some sleep. But don't forget, the biggest problem in your life right now is that you don't love yourself enough. I know you don't believe me, but it's true. Okay, hello universe. It's now 5.50... Shit, what time is it? 5.55 here on June the 8th. Is it the 8th? It's the 8th. Thursday the 8th. And my next open mic is in 65 minutes. So, um, I'm kind of reticent about any of it at the moment, and I'm not trying to use this as a pep talk to get myself down there. I'm going to go down there, but being so new to this, last night's workshop was uh, disorienting because it was the, hmm, the professional slash, um, hmm. It was the type of environment that was dedicated to taking you to a place where you had the presence on stage to be successful. In other words, everything about it was geared toward is that going to get you hired to go do stand-up on stage. Which, 
frankly, is what it should be. But for me, it meant that I didn't have anything crafted that anybody would hire me to go on stage for. So I was totally unprepared. And I still went on stage. So I had to ad-lib some level of integrity for even being there, which I didn't have. So I was phony on stage as much as I could be while still being me because nothing was prepared. I had no target, no destination. So I just spoke. Now, I got uh, kudos for being a compelling speaker, but having no content, substance, or uh, reason to have stood on stage was an obvious critique and one I could have made myself. But that said, it gives me the, <clears throat> the motivation, the I'll show those guys plot twist to return with something that is structurally composed and worthy of a room full of responsive critique, of which I thought all the, the feedback being given through the room was fantastic. Um, and so I think I can ingratiate myself to that room without much trouble, so long as I can find a way to bring something of their level, which is reason why I have to go to do this tonight even though I don't feel very prepared for tonight. Because I just have too much in my mind again. And I know that's going to be problematic, even though I think I have some simple directions I could go that um, might hold me back from being overwhelmed by myself in the moment. But being overwhelmed by this in the moment? Well, duh. I think that's on the agenda. Why won't you lie? Thank you. Be right back. Okay, I'm buzzed. Um, I'm, I think it's one of the challenges for me personally, obviously, is I'm circuitous in everything that I speak. And so tightening something up into uh, concise delivery is almost impossible. But this isn't to say there aren't comedians who have overcome this by either being incredibly insightful, compelling, and, uh, and uh, unique in whatever approach to content topic matter they're taking. Um, Dennis Miller, for instance. Um, Dave Chappelle is this kind of comedian, but he's also the... Uh, Dave Chappelle is every kind of comedian, so he's not a fair comparison. Louis C.K. is probably the best example of this, but there are so many of them that I, I don't know that I'm that funny. And that level of doubt, I think, is obviously uh, something you can overcome only by continuously going up and doing things like this. But to go up and do it this night, I just feel like one of the things I can attack is the discombobulation of society. If we were to just say, do things differently, could we get better results? In basically using our resources just applying them differently, not changing much. Like my first example is there is for the first time ever, $1 trillion of credit card debt 
in America. And $1 trillion as of, I believe, this week in total credit card debt in America. So, in the last six years of uh, defense budget audits, none of which could be completed, the one thing that can be said is they wrote off $23 trillion of missing funds. Just gone. Nobody can account for it. $23 trillion. So, I say, can we prove that the entire American population has at least one twenty-third the value of the Defense Department by just writing that one off? Let's just write that off. All of it. Write it off. And I could not even agree... Okay, universe. <clears throat> I could not even agree. I could not even agree to what? Well, that pause, um, embarrassingly, and uh, symbolically represented at the beginning of this recording, which is now the 10th of June. It is Saturday. It is, uh, what time? It is 12.02 p.m. Uh, I've been up couple of hours, but uh, that pause led to two and a half minutes of silence, because to be honest, I kind of forgot that I was recording and thought that I was more riffing out a monologue for open mic, because one of the points on my open mic uh, joke list to get to was the whole debt concept. And so when my mind went somewhere else because I was that high, well, it wasn't until two and a half minutes later that I actually got back to realizing that I had been recording. At which point I did finish my thought. And as hilarious as that turns out to be, which is fucking hilarious, to be honest, but I couldn't put you through the two and a half minutes of silence to get there because this has already been a minute and a half of talking plus the four minutes of silence, or four seconds of silence at the beginning, so now it's been a minute and a half of talking, but that's still another minute before I got back to conversing in my uh, vocalization mode, instead of my inner voice talking, my outer voice talked. And so, what did I get back to? Well, sure, let's, let's get rid of the credit card debt. I mean, honestly, money doesn't exist anyway. It's backed by nothing but an agreement to be a social lubrication for the uh, the passing and exchange of goods and services. Well, I mean, that's what it starts as. That's what we come in thinking it is. That's what we all believe it is. But we're wrong. What What's interesting to me... Of, let's finish the credit card point first. If we're going to get rid of credit cards, I mean, the debt, all of it, which I think we should. We should just wipe it off the, the ledger books of all banks across everywhere. And then no more credit cards. No more. Why do we have them? The idea that you need something so badly today that you have to pay for it with what little you have and then pay the rest of it off in extended payments 
that are greater than the purchase price of the items so that whoever has more money than you can hold leverage over you? Why are you succumbing to that system? I'm just asking. Once I got rid of credit card debt entirely, I will never have it again. It doesn't make sense. It's a, it's a, again, how what you see as a need, something to help us distribute goods and services equally across a system of individuals with different talents and abilities and needs and uh, uh, services themselves. Well, we have to have a way to recognize that it is a bigger service to have someone come over and put a new roof on your house than it is to have someone come over and cut your lawn. So how do we equally reward those efforts? Through money. But then who controls the money? This was a question I didn't ask myself forever. I didn't realize. In fact, I can remember being an, an adult in my family car, so probably somewhere in my 20s, heading to somewhere and asking in all earnestness how it is that if I've got $1,000 in the bank and I need a new kitchen sink and it's going to be a $250 project. Well, I have someone come do that work and they get my $250 for the work they do. I lose $250, but now have a new kitchen sink. So all this transferring of goods and services is happening on a one-to-one scale. So then how is it that Things are getting more expensive if the money supply has always been one-to-one. It didn't make sense to me. And then it was like, well, that, that's what uh, the effort of our labor produces is the excess value that is in the system. Just the very fact that somebody got paid for their knowledge of putting a sink in that you could put in yourself means they've created excess value in the system. And... Yeah, okay, but well then who controls where that value is determined and how it's coming into the system? Again, these are questions that you don't have unless you think through the long-haul repercussions of a one-to-one -one system that that is finite versus uh, one to, as it turns out, ten system that is manipulated. And... That system makes a whole lot of sense as to why shit gets more expensive and why we're experiencing hyperflation, all of that. But that's because that's a bullshit game. And in so many ways, the, the worst sin of all, if there is sin, and I don't know that there is, but if there is, it is the manipulation of your fellow man. It's that simple. That's what sin is. And if usury isn't the number one way to manipulate your, your fellow man, I don't know what is. Lying, I guess. So lies and usury. The two things the banks are the best at. Well, the politicians are the best at, I guess.
but um, <clears throat> financed by the banks, of course. Okay, so here's the thing, right? <clears throat> so we're going to get rid of all credit card debt. Then we're going to get rid of all credit cards. Well, that fucking sucks. Yeah, okay, that does suck because it does put certain people in a pinch. But the pinch it puts you in is having to deal with your local establishments to have lines of credit. I'm not opposed to having lines of credit. I'm opposed to having credit cards. And what? I, so the way it used to be when I was a kid at, what was that called? What was that market called? Uh, go up to Blankety Market. I can't remember. It was something market. It was about uh, 15 blocks from my house. It was on a corner with a drugstore and a little shopette that had like a, a greeting card store and a haircut place. Um, Super Saver might have been the name of it. I can't remember now. That might have been something else. Doesn't matter. They had uh, about four aisles of groceries and uh, very little of what you would see at someplace like Safeway. They made Safeway look like today's version of Home Depot. But they had everything that you needed. Like, if you needed brown sugar, you could just run to this place instead of all the way down to Safeway. So, I would get sent there for one item by my mom all the time. And what I would do is just say, put it on our account. And then she would go in at the end of the month and pay the account. And these relationships were all over town. And it was a way that... I knew the cashiers because by the time they'd pulled out the Copeland card three times, they knew who I was. And so you had these little areas in your community that you were just integral to. And so to me, lines of credit were a little bit of where that was coming from. So I'm all for the relationships that develop between businesses and the, and the locals they serve. I'm just opposed to somebody like Visa taking their cut. Again, this is because we've sold out convenience, the ability to use this piece of plastic anywhere I fucking want versus relationships of, hey, go to that gas station because I know those guys. I don't have my wallet, but I have an account there. It's a different world. And one of the funniest things about getting old is... Well, first of all, getting old is such a charged cliche phrase of becoming useless is what most people hear. Um, transpiring, moving past its, its date of, of, uh, of engagement, whatever getting old implies doesn't actually happen, except your body breaks down a little bit. If you, I haven't really taken care of myself, but I've always been really active. So I think by keeping my muscles engaged a lot, um, I've been able to maintain basically my high school look my whole life, except when I stopped exercising entirely, smoking dope, eating ding-dongs and ho-hos, I went to 200 and at least three pounds, and I think 208 was the highest I weighed myself before I finally freaked the fuck out and said, no more of this. It was just, it wasn't even that I, well... First of all, looking large is uncomfortable, but being large is really uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to get places. It's uncomfortable to have to carry 40 extra pounds with you everywhere you go. It's a lot of weight. Just pick up a small bag of sand next time you're in Home Depot and carry it around the store with you while you shop. 
And then think about that that was the weight that I was carrying all over my body wherever I went. And so that was enough of a, I got fat once to know what it's like to be fat, but also to know that it is something that if I don't stay active, I'm sure creeps up on me quicker now than it did even then. So I don't know what uh, I'm going through this diatribe about, but, oh, getting old, right. Um, the physical part, still, my knees suck. There are times when I fear if I take the next step on a row of stairs that my knee will buckle out from under me. Like I can feel its weakness. So I think that's damage to my ligaments that I'm not admitting is real and in there that I've never gone to have scoped out because I still play tennis without a single drop of fear that anything in my legs will hurt me. I just think that sometimes the actual uh, motion of going up and down stairs affects my knee in a way that makes it weak. So I try to be very careful on stairs now to the point that when I go downstairs and I haven't been moving much, I go down them one at a time without putting any stress on that knee whatsoever. So you do start to make slight compromises when you're old, but they're slight. They're tiny. I haven't given up anything that I love to do. I haven't found myself lessening my ability in anything that I love to do. If anything, I'm getting better at some things like tennis and golf and sports I played my whole life. And that may be the best thing that they don't tell you about getting old. And that is you get happier. You just start giving less of a shit about stuff that doesn't matter is a better way to put it. Because at some point, I think what happens is you get really comfortable with who you are. And you do this by finally succumbing, if that's what it takes, because that's what it took for me, or embracing, uh, realizing, uh, uh, growing comfortable with, um, but no, I had to succumb to my patterns that I knew defined. Well, that's kind of who I am, I guess. Like, uh, disorganized. Not one to follow through and get projects completed. Um, prone to emotional reactions. Uh, kind. Unusually, uh, uh, giving of myself to other people. These are things that you might find along the way uh, feeling as though they're weaknesses or somehow working against you or just not the razor-sharp uh, saber of, of justification that you wish you were pulling out when you pulled out, say, your comedy card. I've always been somebody who likes to make people laugh, and likes to laugh myself. I find humor to be one of the best vibrational energies to experience in the meat suit that there is. So when I can influence a room full of laughter, that doesn't feel like something I wish I didn't have the tools that I was putting to use. I'm grateful it's there. So what... <clears throat> you frame as weakness in your own quiver of arrows, the one that feels flimsy and about to break, or that you wish wasn't there, but you can't seem to get rid of, 
whatever your burden is, you're wrong. And I swear the hardest life lived is 25 to 45. It's where you will face existential crisis after existential crisis after existential crisis, and no one will have told you they're coming, so you're going to feel like you're navigating it all by yourself. And you'll feel so unsure of what you're going through because everybody else is polished and looking like they've got their shit together that you're going to think somehow you're the problem and that these problems that you think you're experiencing are real. Well, uh, unfortunately, it takes, I guess, until you're about 45 to come to understand that that's just not happening. That, in fact, the way that you're composed is the way you're composed. The only real challenge you're having is marrying that composition to a broken society. And uh, let go of that stress right now. The society is what's broken. Your caring, empathetic, and, and, um, and kind approach to how the world should be versus the one you landed in, well, that disconnects real. And frankly, is the one I've been holding against myself for, what, 30 years? For no reason? For absolutely no reason. And you wake up almost overnight to a much happier, tranquil, more settled self. And I don't know that many people today know this. And I don't know that the whole uber conspiracy of the Illuminati to turn us into robots or whatever the hell <clears throat> the latest conspiracy theories are. I don't know that the real conspiracy that's happening is how individualized phones are making us. We can now do almost everything without leaving the house. Well, as that kid who used to bike up to go get chocolate chips so that my mom could quit, like make us a batch of chocolate chip cookies. Well, I, uh, I probably would pass three or four people along the way that I knew. And my life outside the house was always the life that meant the most to me, my whole life. The idea of a life shut in for convenience, where my paper towels are delivered to my front door, where I don't have to go on any adventure whatsoever for anything, well, to me, that may be the worst possible life I can imagine. <laughs>